Welcome to another edition of Packy Chat. This is episode number 16. Uh, for all the people that have been listening to us all along, we appreciate it so much. I uh, love seeing all the positive comments and getting the messages on Facebook. Uh, we really appreciate it. Make sure if you are following us on Facebook, you give all these uh, all our stuff a like and let the people in your barn and friends know about us. Uh, the more the merrier. And as always, uh, if you can give us a rating on whatever... Um, wherever you listen to us, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or whatever, give us a rating on there. Uh, that's also very helpful to help other people find us. Uh, one other thing before I get into this week, we are now on Patreon. Uh, if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a, a place for if you're a, a loyal listener and, and want to help contribute and uh, support Package Chat, it would be appreciated. Uh, again, we're not doing this to make any money off it, but... Um, you know, anything helps. We have to pay for software and podcast space and microphones and all that stuff. Uh, so check out patreon.com. Look us up uh, at Packy Chat. You can find the link on Facebook as well. If now is not the time, I get it with everything going on. Uh, as long as you're listening and giving us likes, we're happy with that too. This week we were lucky enough to be joined by uh, one of the leading experts in elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus, uh, EEHV, Dr. Paul Ling from Baylor College of Medicine. Paul was kind enough to find some free time in his busy schedule to sit down with us and, and talk about elephant herpes virus. Um, you know, no matter how many times I hear him talk, I'm always taking notes and always learning more from him, besides the fact that this virus and how we treat it and what we do for it is always ever-changing with the research being done and, and the stuff we learn from elephants. Uh, Paul is just such a wealth of knowledge about viruses and especially elephant viruses and you know we're always learning something when we listen to Paul. So I guess that's enough for me. Uh, let's get to it. Get into the story of how we got involved with elephants and, and with you guys in the relationship with the Houston Zoo. I think I don't know if a lot of people have heard that story. I think that would be a good intro for me. Sure. So uh, a lot of people have asked me the question of how did a guy who's doing research on uh, human diseases get involved with working on elephants? And it was about uh, 10, 10 years ago, maybe a bit more than 10 years ago, uh, just after the death of Mac at the Houston Zoo. Um, and I remember hearing about this. And um, I knew a little bit about this story because I had done a postdoctoral fellowship in um, Diane Hayward's lab, who's, um, she's uh, Gary Hayward's uh, wife. And it's actually one big lab, their operation at Johns Hopkins. And so I knew a bit about the EEHV story that had come out from the Hayward lab prior. And uh, so there were some people at Baylor who reached out to the Houston Zoo and, and asked whether there's anything they could do to help. And I think the Houston Zoo prior to this had had uh, several elephants die from EEHV, either at the zoo or after they'd been transported to other places. And I think they were sick of it and they wanted to do something and be more proactive. And so <clears throat> some conversations went around. I was the local guy in the Texas Medical Center who was working on, on uh, human herpes viruses and doing basic research on human herpes viruses. And sort of one thing led to another and uh, asked if I would uh, be willing to, to help or at least attend some early meetings to see what 
what we might be able to do. And uh, so that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I was at a point in my career where I had achieved, you know, a pretty decent level of success working on human herpes viruses. And when, so when this elephant thing came along, you know, it really came down to, I've, I've, a lot of pe some people have heard this story and I just said, you know, I thought about it. How am I going to get funding for it? You know, how's it going to affect my current research program? And it just came down to who wouldn't want to help save baby elephants. That's really, that's the crux of the matter. And um, I'm going to find a way or figure out a way to try to make this work. So that's how we got started, or at least initially. Um, some funds were put up by the Houston Zoo initially to kind of get us going. And I started thinking about an overarching program that um, I could start to help with this EEHV issue. And um, the program I came up with was uh, in human medicine, we have something that's called bench to bedside, which is take things that you develop at the research bench and apply them to the clinic. And uh, I came up with a program for this, I call it bench to barn, and it has three phases. Uh, it was diagnostics, uh, treatments, and long-term goal of a vaccine. And the first two was to try to develop tools and ways of thinking about this virus to help veterinarians and elephant keepers deal with the disease immediately or short-term. Uh, and then be working on, while we were doing that, work on things uh, uh, that would lead ultimately towards uh, a vaccine. So uh, you guys are probably well familiar with the qPCR assays that are being used to help monitor um, both Asian and, and African elephants today. Um, those were all um, developed in our lab and those are the ones that Aaron Latimer uses at the at Smithsonian to test a lot of other zoos and um, many other countries around the world now and institutions are using these tests all around the world now. Paul, when you, when you first started, you know, going from humans to elephants, how advantageous do you think it was with your background with, it, with working with a human herpes to help you progress elephant herpes? And then in your time with the elephant herpes, is there anything that you've learned with the elephant herpes that you could go back and help out um, any research or any treatment or anything with the human herpes? Right, uh, so, um, so that's a good question. So um, let me start first with uh, the idea that, is there anything that we could do uh, or any of our research with elephant herpes viruses that could be um, uh, uh, useful for human medicine or medicine for other animals? And I have two answers to that. Um, the first answer is, is that I think saving elephants, saving baby elephants is I think a noble enough cause in and of itself. And I feel comfortable with just doing that. Um, having said that, though, I mean, science is littered with examples of people working on out-of-the-box systems that led to discoveries that really transformed many areas of science. So one example I like to point out to people is um, the, the, you know, the qPCR assay that we use for EEHV 
and um, that you've heard about that's used for detecting SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Um, the enzyme that's used for qPCR, the workhorse enzyme, was discovered in the thermophilic bacteria that live in the hot springs in Yellowstone. So who would have thought that people studying those bacteria would have led to the discovery of something that was, you know, it's uh, PCR is as useful for a molecular biologist or a scientist as a screwdriver is for um, a carpenter. So, you know, who would have thought that those two things would have come together in that way? And there's many, many other examples like that. So I do think that there are potentially some things just by studying an unusual system like elephants that may in the future have some payoff for uh, uh, looking at human disease or human herpes viruses. Um, in terms of my background in human herpes viruses, the biology of herpes viruses, of course, has been best studied in humans. And so the concepts that we think about in terms of how do these virus infect animals or humans, um, you know, what sort of uh, 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 strategies do these viruses use to establish long-term chronic infection and latency and then reactivation from latency and those sorts of things Conceptually, those are the same in all herpes viruses. The thing that does differ is a bit is the types of tissues that these viruses infect. Maybe some of the details might be a little bit different, but conceptually, we're really dealing with the same types of concepts from humans. And I've, I've used that as a fundamental basis of knowledge for almost everything that we've done in elephants. And so, you know, obviously the, the African elephants, this EHV is relatively new, right? The last few years. Well, to us, right? Right. Were you, were you surprised by that? Or did you see that? Like, of course that, of course that was going to happen. Um, uh, I, I was surprised. So there have been prior to 2019, by my count, and don't take me exactly, you know, 100% on this, but I think there were only four cases that I'm aware of, of EHV associated disease in African elephants. So um, there was Miss Betts where EHV-6 was discovered, but that was uh, a non-lethal case. Uh, Kajana at the Oakland Zoo, I believe, uh, was a lethal case that was EHV-2. And then EHV-3 was discovered um, I think through infection actually initially of Hansa, which is an Asian elephant, which probably, although we don't know for certain, may have acquired that from the African elephants were, that were within the same facility. So, um, and there was a case, I think, of EHV-6 in Thailand, maybe, uh, of an African elephant that had been, that died up there. So, um, but since 2019, by my count, there's been at least eight cases of EHV associated disease in African elephants with three deaths. Uh, that's a lot of cases since March of 2019. So that is a surprise to me. Um, obviously you guys know much better than I do, um, but the history of importation and breeding and so on and so forth with African elephants, I think uh, is a bit different than Asian elephants. I think Asian elephants is a much 
longer standing history of perhaps at least fewer imports in recent years and more uh, efforts to establish captive breeding programs perhaps than has been ongoing in African elephants. Will we see increased incidence uh, in uh, African elephants as breeding programs are, are amplified in captivity? I, I can't answer that question. Um, is this just serendipity? You know, we just happen to have a lot of cases in this last year to year and a half, and uh, we won't see any more. Um, the bottom line is that I think because of what's happened is it warrants uh, more effort in terms of investigating EEHV in African elephants, in terms of the prevalence of the different EEHVs that circulate in those populations, and, uh, and uh, surveillance and looking at the biology in Africans. I think by and large, there's going to be many similarities, but um, there could be some differences. Do you think that uh, there's been African elephants that have died from EHV that we just kind of wrote off as something else and we don't have the samples to test. And two, uh, have you been able to genotype the virus of the elephants that died? I think that um, it looks, and, and Gary Hayward's done more of the uh, and, and maybe in collaboration with Aaron Latimer has done the, the genotyping of from the different animals uh, where the cases have occurred. Um, my, the, the latest data that I'm aware of is that the strains that are circulating within the other animals in the herd are identical to the ones that uh, cause lethal disease or clinical illness. So you know, they, they got it from, from one or more of the herd mates, probably initially started this, you know, the infection process in some of the elephants that were vulnerable. Um, so there's that. Uh, in terms of- Hold, on, hold been... on. Hey, Paul, hold on. One, one, one question yeah. to that. The ones from even the elephants at Indianapolis, the genotypes all, all that close? It, they look, I, I think they're identical. Uh, certainly the ones between uh, uh, um, the two that passed, they, I think they're identical. And I think they're identical in the ones that uh, got uh, ill but survived. Now, I think that there are other strains probably or, or uh, strains of the same species. There might be other three A's floating around. I'm not aware of that. Um, but there might be something like that going on. But as far as I'm aware, in the, in the cases of clinical illness and lethality, those, I think those were all identical. But you'll have to get final confirmation of that from Gary and or Aaron uh, to be 100% certain on that. Um, in terms of African elephants, um, have there been ones that have died previously that uh, passed from EHV infection in the past, either in captivity or in the wild? It certainly is very possible. Uh, my understanding is, you know, wild elephants in Africa, uh, once an animal dies, there's not much evidence left within a very short period of time uh, because of scavenging and other animals eating them. So, um, you know, that, that, those are difficult samples to get a hold of. 
And so I, that's a big black box, I think, in terms of African elephants in the wild and susceptibility and number of deaths caused by EHV and wild African elephants. Uh, we have the tools now to begin looking for it. Um, one would just have to find, you know, the right cases and the right samples. So are there, are there any sample, like is anyone testing samples that are from elephants in this country, African elephants that have died in the last 10 years that might have stored samples? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not involved in that if people are doing that. And then last question for now from me. Uh, what, what would cause, what, in your opinion, what do you think caused the flare up, if you will, at Indianapolis? You know, we, we know at, mm -hmm. at least Houston, for example, like, uh, you know, with Mac and where some of these, some of these origins started, when you look at a, a, a place that's kind of a closed herd for the last 10 ish plus years, what causes that all of a sudden to happen like that? Right. So um, I, I, I give a, a bit more general answer in terms of what I think uh, is associated with the vulnerability of these elephants to getting lethal disease. How about we start with that? So we've published this already in Asian elephants, but there's uh, evidence is accumulating that you know, young elephants can obtain maternal antibodies to EEHV when they're born, and that these antibodies decline, can decline over time. And when you look at all the lethal cases that we've looked at in Asian elephants, they were seronegative to the EEHV species that caused infection and death. So it was a primary infection in an animal that apparently had never seen that virus before. So, and, and we've known for a long time the age group or age group range of these elephants that uh, uh, are susceptible to infection is between two and eight years of age, which is about around about the time two years is when they're gonna wean. And we know that's when antibodies fall. So there's clear, clearly an association with dropping antibodies and vulnerability to primary lethal primary infection. We now have, and I've, I presented this at the EAZ WV meeting this summer, so it's no secret, but we're, we have some limited amount of data this is happening in African elephants too. So those elephants in Indianapolis um, had maternal antibodies to EEHV3 prior uh, when they were born and those antibodies declined over time. So they were essentially seronegative to EEHV3 and um, they caught infection from EEHV3 and, 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 and died. Um, so the, the issue is a little bit more complex with there's a handful of elephants that have antibodies to EEHVs, but not to the species that caused either illness or death. Uh, so we're trying to sort that out in the African elephants. Um, it turns out that there's, looks like there's a couple of different strains of EEHV3. We're calling them 3A and 3B. And the differences between 3A and 3B look like they're a bit greater to each other than say, for example, between 1A and 1B, which we, we know can cause lethal disease or clinical illness in Asian elephants. So is there a, 
kind of a similar story in African elephants with uh, 3A and 3B. And could there be situations where you have an elephant that maybe acquired 3B infection and sometime prior and then got 3A and got sick but survived, right? Or vice versa. And which we see sometimes with the 1A, 1B scenario where it looks like there might be some cross protection uh, with a prior infection of 1A for 1B or 1B for 1A. Um, so is there something like that going on in Africans? I don't know the exact answer yet for that, but I think it's a possibility, if that makes sense. Is there a chance that you might think you have a closed herd, you haven't had any elephants coming in and out for a decade plus? Now, do these elephants always have it? Are they always carriers and they could have it for 10 years and, um, and then it just erupts for some reason. So even though you can say you have a closed herd for 10 years, I don't know where it came from. Could it be as simple as it's always been there, you just haven't seen it? Right. So this gets back to the general biology of herpes viruses in general. So, you know, you've heard the slogan, herpes is forever. So people generally talk about that in association with cold sores or genital herpes, right? But it's the same with all herpes viruses. And actually, let's just rewind a little bit and think about um, all mammalian species are infected with multiple herpes viruses. Um, I ask this question all the time when I'm, when I'm talking to different audiences. I say, you know, how many herpes viruses do you think um, infect humans? And, you know, I say, well, how many think three? And, you know, most people will raise their hands. And I say, how many think five? And, you know, fewer people raise their hands. I go, well, how about nine? And, um, you know, almost no one raises their hand. But that's the truth is that we can be infected with up to nine different herpes viruses. And once you get infected with these viruses, they establish what we call long-term chronic infection, which means that there may or may not be any primary disease associated when you first get infected with them. And then the virus hides in different cell types in the body. And it, depending on the herpes virus, sometimes they can hide in immune cells or some like your blood cells. Sometimes they can hide in nerve cells. So for example, y'all probably had chicken pox and chicken pox can reactivate and cause shingles. Well, chickenpox hides in nervous system cells or nerve cells. So um, that's the strategy that herpes viruses use is they infect, establish, find the tissues that they wanna go hide in. And then what happens is over time by mechanisms that we don't really understand all that clearly, um, you can get a slow level of what we call reactivation of the virus when it's hiding in those tissues. And when that happens, that virus can, it, it happens oftentimes in, in or around mucosal surfaces and that virus then can get secreted in saliva, trunk secretions or in, um, in reproductive tract, for example, um, and then that's how the virus can spread to other hosts. Uh, am I making sense here? So um, that's a strategy of all herpes viruses. 
Um, so most adult animals in a population of animals is going to have one or more herpes viruses and at random times or sporadically, you will be able to find evidence of those herpes viruses in mucosal secretions like saliva, or in the case of elephants, a trunk wash, or even sometimes in, um, in uh, uh, reproductive tract, mucosa in the reproductive tract. Um, and everybody, every individual handles these viruses differently. So we did a study a long time ago on Epstein-Barr virus. Other people have done this too. And we had various groups of people. We had some people where we could detect Epstein-Barr virus in the saliva every single time we looked. And we had other groups of people where we never detected ever at all. And we see the same thing in elephants. So in our first published paper uh, that Jeff Stanton published from my lab, when we surveyed the Houston herd, um, I think it was Shanti, almost every time we looked, she was shedding uh, EEHV1 in her, in her trunk wash. And I don't think we've ever detected any, maybe one time, uh, EEHV1 shedding in Thai's trunk secretions. So there's variability between individuals. Now, what causes an actual outbreak? Could it just be random low-level shedding that a vulnerable animal gets? and that's what causes disease? Or could there be some event like maybe an animal is sick with something else and their immune system is compromised for a transient period of time. So they're shedding more and that increases the odds that another vulnerable animal in the herd might get it. Then um, that's another potential scenario where that could happen. What we do know is that once a vulnerable animal gets it for the first time is lots of times we see that those animals will shed huge amounts of virus. And when that happens, if there are vulnerable herd mates, they will definitely have a much greater chance of getting it. And we've seen that multiple times where if one young animal gets it, uh, it most certainly is gonna spread it to other vulnerable members of the herd. Interesting, you struck a chord when you mentioned about the different tissues that this virus can hide in. Is any way conceivable that, say you think you have a closed herd and you're gonna do some artificial insemination of the elephants, you bring semen from another elephant. Is there any conceivable way that you could be introducing EHV into your herd through semen? Yeah, I think some people have looked at that and I, if, if it's been published, whoever published it, please forgive me because I can't remember exactly the data. Um, so I, I, it, it's a theoretical possibility, but I'm not sure that I've seen any evidence that that's occurring at a level where uh, there's a, a high level of concern. Uh, maybe we need to look harder. I don't, I don't know the answer, but so far I, I don't recall, I don't remember seeing anything along those lines. And Paul, when you say the virus is hiding and then, yeah. you know, we have um, a higher prevalence in amount, you know, the amount of shedding and things, is there changes in, I mean, cause I don't understand all of this stuff uh, clearly um, the way some people do, but 
is, is this because the virus can live a long time or does it continue to replicate or does it replicate at different rates when you have higher amounts of shedding or, or is it just sort of happenstance or it really doesn't make a difference? I mean, regardless of how much you shed and how much it's replicating or does it just sort of go dormant and live for a while before it does or how, does it replace itself? I guess that's kind of the question I'm asking. Um, yeah, uh, kind of sort of all of the above. So, um, when the virus reaches the tissues or cell types that it wants to hide in, typically what it wants to do is be completely silent in the, actually let's back up a little bit. There are two things you have to remember. There, you might wanna separate out into what we might call clinical latency versus latency at, at the molecular level, right? So you can have virus reactivating sporadically in a healthy animal, but you're not getting any sort of clinical disease at that point, right? So it's still sort of a clinically benign situation happening, right? But the, the, the way this virus has been selected to survive is once it finds its target tissue, the genome of the virus goes into that cell and it usually enters into the nucleus of that cell and it remains separate from the DNA in that cell. And it just, it sits there for the most part, different herpes viruses have different strategies, but let's just say as in a general sense, it pretty much sits there and does nothing. In other words, now the genome is in a cell, but your immune system doesn't recognize that the virus is in that cell because it's not doing anything. It's what we call quiescent. It's just sitting there. So that's great for the virus. The virus then is protected from being eliminated by the immune system. But what happens occasionally is, and I think this is maybe what happening with EEHV, and I'm using an example of Epstein-Barr virus in humans as a similar example is, if you hide out in immune cells, for example, blood cells, those blood cells oftentimes will traffic around in the body. And once in a while, when they traffic through mucosal tissues, like in the mouth or the trunk or the reproductive tract, there are signals that might be sent to that cell that cause that cell to um, uh, want to undergo a process we call differentiation. And that's a problem because now that cell is going to ultimately die. And the virus has evolved to, to sense that and go, hey, I don't want to be in this cell anymore. I don't want to be quiet anymore. I need to make more of myself so I can spread to more of those cells and be quiet again. Does that make sense? So that's what we call sort of a sporadic level of reactivation. And when that happens, some of the viruses that are made in that process will get shed into saliva or trunk secretions, wherever that, that reactivation event happens to be. And some of those viruses will go and reinfect new blood cells where it can maintain a pool of cells that have latent viruses. So it's achieved two objectives. It's made more of itself to maintain a population of cells that it's quiet in, but now it also has made more viruses that are shed to the environment and can be spread to other hosts, right? where then it can ma be maintained within the population of animals. I hope I explained that okay. No, no, you did. So when, when, they, when they sense that that cell is going to die, 
yeah. I guess the question is, do they, does the virus die with the cell? And I guess uh, does it matter? It does it, not. Well, it will ultimately, if it just stayed there and did nothing, that genome, because it's not in a virus particle or, or protected from anything, if that cell dies, the, the viral genome goes along with it. So that's why the virus wants to, that's why it wants to start replicating and make more virus particles because it knows basically its house is going to get burned to the ground. It needs to get out of there and find other houses to live in. So does it matter, I guess, so does it make a difference depending on what cell the virus is sort of residing in, whether it's multiple or whether it's, you know, one, you know, like a butterfly, you know, host plant where it only deals with like one particular kind of cell, does it matter of the, you know, the, how, how the body replaces those cells as to whether you'd have a higher rate of shed or higher or even potentially clinical disease if that's how they work? Or, you know, at those times where you're seeing it, like for instance, in elephants with EHV, if you're seeing it shed in an animal, you know, like you said, every time, is that, you think that's specific to the animal or could that be um, a, a product of where the virus is hiding and how the, how the body re normally replaces those cells? Right. Um, I don't know the exact answers to those questions. Um, I guess I just go back to individuals handle these viruses differently and what the mechanisms are for why an individual might shed more than another individual. Uh, I, I don't think we really know the, the answer to that. Uh, we do know that in, in humans who are immunosuppressed for one reason or another, whether it's a genetic uh, issue or a, um, they're uh, what we call iatrogenically suppressed by a physician because they've got a solid organ transplant or, or, um, or they have cancer you know, and being treated for cancer, those sorts of things that can dampen the immune response. We, we certainly know that those are situations that can result in uh, uh, less control on the virus and more shedding and more issues or problems with herpes viruses under those circumstances. But in normal, healthy in normal, healthy animals, normal, healthy humans, you're just going to have variability. And, and what the mechanisms are that are responsible for that, I, I, I'm not aware. I don't know if we've teased that out. You mentioned before, you know, it's that saving baby elephants is a noble thing. And we seem to always really equate this disease with younger elephants. What happens, you know, something changes, of course, that they're at a lower risk. Is it just that their body their immune system is developed enough to keep this in check or is there something else that's going on there? That when they get a certain age, they seem to be less vulnerable or, um, you know, I know for our testing, when they get a certain age, it seems the frequency you have to test is not so often. Right, because I mean, the idea is for many of these elephants, hopefully they've acquired one or more herpes viruses when they were very young and so uh, as they've gotten older, they've acquired them all, didn't get disease for whatever reason. And uh, so, of so yes, by the time they get to a certain age, many of them probably have already had one or more of these things. And so they're much less vulnerable. That's generally the case. Yeah, now we've seen with the African elephants, the ages of some of these elephants is a bit older. So that's a bit unusual, um, but it's still not, uh, it's still within the realm of what we've seen in Asian elephants um, at the Houston Zoo. I believe 
uh, Kimba was 13 uh, when, when she contracted uh, EHV1 uh, lethal case. Would it be safe to say that maybe then she didn't get a, a whole host of, um, you know, exposure when she was younger? Yeah, that, that, that'd be the guess. That's the guess. That was, that was most likely her primary infection, right? Yeah, most likely. Um, in fact, Kimba, in the paper that we published earlier this year, was one of the... So there's some Asian elephants which look like they were completely seronegative to all... Like, we couldn't detect a single antibody to any part of the virus that we looked at. And she was one of that group of elephants that looked like she was just what I would say, EEHV seronegative. Um, there's a handful of them which had an antibody to EEHV. It just wasn't EHV1. It was either uh, four and or five. Maybe they had prior, but they clearly had not had one. And then they ended up getting infected with one and dying. You know, we talked earlier about the, the closed herd thing. You know, I know that Houston... We, we talked for a long time about not bringing elephants in or moving elephants because it seems like there was always an elephant in that vulnerable age group, less than, less than four. Um, and then there were some pregnant. So by the time they got older, new ones were moving into that vulnerable age group. And then even though that herd was considered what I would consider closed for a long time, we then, we then struck up that year of five or six, you know, back to back different cases um, and that's when I kind of threw the closed herd thing out the window. Uh, yeah. you know, b before that we were talking, you know, we knew that Mac, um, the virus he got was definitely linked to a specific elephant that came into the herd. So we figured as long as the herd was closed that we had no new, uh, no new germs to worry about. In your opinion, you just don't think anybody really was shedding like adult wise were shedding until those, you know, when, all of a sudden they all got sick? It may have been several of the animals in that herd um, were naive for infection with some of those viruses. Um, so, you know, it looked like, and again, I don't, I don't have a specific antibody test that can distinguish infections with EHV5 from the others distinctly. So I, uh, but it, it looked like at least from the viremia and the way it spread throughout the herd, it certainly looked like um, uh, the, the animals in the herd were naive for being infected with EHV5. And that again, perhaps the new animals that were brought into the herd brought EHV5 into it in addition, right? Um, same thing with EHV4 and perhaps even EHV1A. Right, but it was just, it was just weird that it was four or five years after the new elephant came into the herd that that stuff oh, finally showed right. up, you know? Right. The timing, the timing of when these things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have a good explanation for what triggers perhaps a, a large shedding event from an animal that might cause, you know, an outbreak within a zoo. Um, the only time I can predict when there might be a, an outbreak is when an animal clearly has high viremia and or clinically ill. I definitely know that that animal's probably shedding a lot and that there's definitely gonna be spreading of that virus. But under sort of normal equilibrium of a herd, 
I don't know. I don't know what's going to be predictive in terms of, you know, when things are going to, when animals are going to shed and who's going to get what and what's going to happen. Um, we do have some tools now though, to, that we can predict who might be vulnerable to certain viral infections. So we think we've got a pretty good antibody test for EHV4. We've got a first generation one for 1A and 1B. So we can probably uh, look at all animals in the herd and, and determine whether or not they're likely to have been infected prior with one of those three viruses. And that might be helpful in terms of, you know, uh, looking at those pr uh, profiles and making a determination in terms of, you know, what animals one might want to send out or, and or bring into a herd uh, when you know what the current status is of the animals that are there. Um, that might be helpful information to have at hand. Yeah, so that was that was kind of the next question I was going to ask is what what steps can you do as a receiving institution that would make you feel comfortable bringing elephants into your herd? And does the age of your existing herd matter? You know, so if I got, let's say, you know, four-ish older elephants, um, would you be concerned bringing elephants in um, versus your breeding facility that's looking to move elephants into your herd? What, what things can we do to set ourselves up to be more successful for that? Yeah, so um, again, this is just me talking as a non-elephant, non-zoo person. Um, so take that, take what I say with a grain of salt, but um, the serology assays can give important information in terms of who's had what. And based on what we know, um, it looks like uh, elephants, if they've got antibodies to a particular EEHV species, they're most likely not going to be susceptible to getting disease from that species. So if you bring in you know, if you have an elephant that's positive for EHVs one, four, and five, um, and it's an older elephant, you probably don't have a whole lot to worry about. That's, that's, that's my reasoning. Um, and if you have a very young elephant, say under the age of two, who maybe has still extensive antibodies from, um, from the dam to multiple EEHVs, you know, um, that elephant might have some level of protection. Um, but, you know, if you've got young animals that are, you know, say, again, between the ages of two and eight or even up to 10, and you're not sure, you know, I think doing an immuno profiling and looking at what they have would be an important step before you either move them into a herd uh, or accept animals from another herd uh, who might, uh, be shedding strains of that virus that that elephant doesn't hasn't apparently made an immune response to, and it might potentially be vulnerable to a serious infection with those viruses. I'm not saying that you you couldn't do it, but that type of information we can certainly provide to people, and then uh, zoos can make the decision in terms of they can weigh the risks, and they know what the risks are. With that information, you can decide what to do with that. And everybody's going to have a different level of risk tolerance, right? And we've seen that in society in 2020. <laughs> this this may be too broad of a question. We haven't got the answer yet. But, you know, a lot of us work with elephants for quite some time. And 
the list of viruses that we're worried about elephants contracting or causing a problem is is really really small compared to some other cats out there. Um, you know, is there any you know in your experience any reasoning why it seems like um, it doesn't? We don't know if COVID affects elephants yet, but so far we haven't seen I think any positive cases. Influenza, the uh, cold virus, and all that stuff. It doesn't seem they get that that those type of viruses or that we see any evidence of that. Was it about this herpes virus that seems to be able to penetrate this defense the elephants seem to have against a wide variety of um, uh, viruses that are toxic get? Right, so um, again, going back to human herpes viruses, sometimes timing of infection can be an important part of the process. So for example, going back to Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus I studied for many years, um, it can also, it can cause a disease called mononucleosis. Maybe you had it or you had friends who got mono in high school or college. Mono is generally a disease in the developed world, not in the developing world. Why? Because most people in the developing world acquire this virus at a much younger age and um, it's only in the developed world do they uh, occasionally, some people miss out on getting it when they're young and they get it when they're older and it can manifest itself as a more serious disease as a young adult or a teenager than it does when, they, when you get it as a baby. So that's an example of when you actually get uh, an infection with a herpes virus that can cause an issue. Um, going back to polio, I mean, polio used to be called the rich kids disease, right? So Again, it was, if you hadn't gotten it before and you got it at a certain uh, age, uh, later on in life, it could cause much more serious progression of disease. So I think we're seeing perhaps some of that going on with the elephants is that um, they aren't necessarily getting um, infected with these viruses um, early on uh, or as early as perhaps maybe they normally would under conditions where you know, well, around the world with Asian elephants, there used to be much larger herds, right? And maybe there's much more chance for exposures. And maybe what we're seeing now are smaller, more fragmented herds throughout the world and, and in captivity. So the chance for uh, uh, exposure to the virus at a very young age uh, uh, becomes less frequent. So, you know, it's interesting, we keep referring back to, um, you know, 2020, and obviously virus is a, is a big thing for all of us, you know, when you hear about herd immunity and all those things. So obviously, these all come into play in this conversation. I, I believe I've asked you this before at a conference, but just for, for this audience, do you think there's anything we could do from a management perspective to help with infection and timing of infection? Or do you think there are any factors that exist that maybe we don't control that that maybe help with that. So, for instance, uh, a, a larger group of elephants with you know uh, younger elephants or a number of younger elephants is a better quote unquote better situation or more conducive situation to get more normal um, primary infection and then um, I guess resistance to it later on. Or is there anything we can do? Like you know we've always said. When you got through, you know, a friend of yours got the chicken pox, you, you all go over to their house so you all get it and get it out of the way kind of thing. Is there anything that we could do from a management perspective to, I don't know, to, to, to drive, you know, or, or I guess to lower the 
risk for, for serious complications rather than kind of just doing what we're doing now. Right. I think you've hit on one, one part of that equation, which is probably, I'm, I'm guessing, again, I'm not, I'm not a annual animal behaviorist or anything like that, but I think a reasonable guess would be that larger herds uh, uh, would be uh, beneficial for achieving some of the things that you're talking about, just having a larger herd, right? More chances for spread and infection with the virus uh, amongst the herd. Um, and maybe at, at what might be a more appropriate timing of getting those infections. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, we might not always be able to achieve that. So that's why we're working on a vaccine. In but fact, the vaccine that we're working on, it, so vaccination, really what it does is it tricks your body to making an immune response against that virus or pathogen or bacteria, right? So that it prevents you from getting, you know, serious disease or death. And so we're, our hope is with our vaccine is that we can prevent lethal disease, hopefully even clinical illness. But I don't think that any of these vaccines are gonna be sufficient to provide what we call sterilizing immunity in other words, prevent the ability of this herpes virus from infecting completely and establishing long-term chronic infection or latency in the animal. So probably what you may find is a successful vaccine might will hopefully prevent disease and, 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 and lethality, but um, you are, will probably still continue to see animals getting infected, which is actually a good thing because then they're going to not have disease, but then they're going to live with the virus like they normally do. And hopefully again, maybe spread it to younger herd mates in addition. When, when you say, you know, larger herds are, are a good thing. And I, I don't think anybody on here is going to disagree with that regardless, but as far as EHV goes, larger herds are beneficial if you're a breeding facility, right? I mean, if you have two or three old elephants, chances are probably real good that they've, that they have had a primary infection and there's not a whole lot to worry about. Correct. I, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. Yes. You could make a case that elephants in captivity are, you know, really super healthy and well-fed and they're not very stressed compared to animals in the wild that maybe have parasite loads looking for food sources uh, human conflict, predators, maybe the stressors that are on wild elephants are much greater. Maybe they tend to shed a lot more. So do we need to make a case that in fact, elephants we keep in captivity, we need to stress them out a hell of a lot more so they shed more herpes viruses and it looks more like wild elephants. I don't know. <laughs> so if a, if a calf is born from a mother that's had very minimal exposure the time she gives birth, is it a higher risk than uh, than a calf being born from a mother that's had quite a lot of exposure? Because would that elephant be more bulletproof because it probably has more antibodies? Yeah, I think that's a good guess. I don't have an exact case where I've seen that happen. So we've seen, for example, at the Houston Zoo, um, Shanti um, doesn't always, and this is in published papers, so it's it's not anything that isn't out there, 
she doesn't always give huge levels of antibodies um, to EEHV1B to her calves, for example. She gives great antibodies to EHV1A. Now, it could just be that the markers that we're looking at um, to detect whether or not uh, the, the specific antibodies to EHV1B that um, you know, we're missing something, right? A no, no antibody assays can be perfect and give you all the most complete answers you can get. But I'm just sharing an example of where it looks like, again, some dams may provide anti-EHV antibodies to the different species at various levels, which will depend again upon what they've been exposed to. All of her calves uh, have had, you know, well, I guess not all of them. A lot of them have had serious EHV cases, whereas an elephant like Tess, uh, you know, her calves don't, to date, you know, they clearly had got the infection at some point and fought through it and we didn't even know they had it. Right. Um, Tupelo is a great example. Um, we had no idea, right? And when you went back and looked at her antibody titers, they were starting to drop. And then all of a sudden they went up and they stayed up. And they've been that way ever since. Um, probably a good guess is, you know, at some point she got infected with EHV1A. And nobody ever knew the worse for it. And uh, she's maintained antibody levels to that virus ever since. So what do you think that means for her? And it's probably a self-explanatory answer to this question, but what do you think that means for any offspring she would have? Does that, does that automatically carry over based on what you were talking about the yeah. previous question All about different antibody levels for different animals? Do you think just be, you know, the fact that she has high, um, high titers for that particular antibody would automatically assume her calf would be protected equally? Well, I can't say any, anything about protection, but I can say at least in terms of antibody levels. So when uh, all, both in Asian elephants now that we've looked, several of them, maybe, I don't know, four or five, and now in African elephants, we have three cases that we looked at, uh, or three scenarios. They, uh, the, the antibody titers that we detect in the dam at birth are almost identical to the titers that those animals have when they're born. So that means that the mothers are transferring uh, prenatally or transplacentally anti-EHV antibodies that approach similar levels uh, in the mother, they approach similar levels uh, in the calves when they're born. So yes, they are potentially providing some, you would guess, some level of protection via those antibodies to their calves. Here's, here's, another, here's another crazy question that only this wouldn't have, if we had this, you know, conversation last year, this wouldn't be an issue. But, um, you know, obviously vaccines are sort of the silver bullet, we think, for some of this. But now, and I, I'm going to mess up the name, but these, um, these, these, these manufactured antibodies that they're using now that the president just got, is, th is that another track that could potentially be taken if we can't make the body make the antibodies, can we make the antibodies and then introduce them? Yeah, it's a really good question. Right now, um, we don't have the tools to do those types of things in an elephant system. 
um, a lot of the tools that are required to isolate and identify um, uh, the cells that are making those specific types of antibodies, for example, to um, SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, and, and the methods that are used are all worked out for doing that in a human system. Um, we would require development, I think, of some uh, additional tools in order to try to do that in an elephant system. I'm not aware of, of anything right now where we could probably where we could mimic that. I'd like to, but um, we just don't have the tools. It'd be a, it'd be. I think it's probably feasible, but it'd be a, you know a significant endeavor to to go that route. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we've chosen to go the vaccine route and uh, um, simply because we know we can make some vaccines that, that might be beneficial. You know, we have the tools available to do that right now. Earlier, just a little while ago, you were talking about our antibodies, how some elephants have higher antibodies and, uh, it's, you know, it's passed on to the calf. Clearly it's a benefit in the fact that they're, that they have such high antibodies, but do you think, okay, so let's say a calf is born, they have high antibodies. Uh, another elephant sheds EHV. The young elephant doesn't get its primary infection because it has its, mom and its mom's antibodies. Do you think it affects how it produces its own antibodies going forward? You know what I mean? So, so if it didn't have strong antibodies from its mom, and it had to kind of use fight it off itself. Would it get? Would it develop its own antibodies stronger and sooner? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. There certainly are examples of that in the veterinary world, and maybe you can have some have uh, Dr. Ellen come back on again on another podcast. She can comment. But you know, we see this right with. Um, I'm going through this right now. I got a puppy, and uh, she's got to get all these parvovirus vaccines. And my understanding is, is that they get multiple ones because there's, you know, uh, a heterogeneity in the amount of antibody that puppies get from their mothers to parvovirus. And so the effectiveness of that vaccine uh, will depend upon, you know, I guess it's less effective if there's a lot of antibodies and it'll be more effective if there's fewer antibodies, right? Because it will take better. So that sort of idea um, you know, could there be something similar going on with the elephants? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, this is more of a, more of for whoever's listening. You know, we hear um, a lot of places kind of, not everyone can get blood on all their elephants, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you're at the conferences in these different meet the EHB meetings, you know, people get really hung up on the trunk wash aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, is there nothing replaces getting blood, correct? Correct. Because? Uh, because uh, really the, the most, well, I, well, you've probably heard, uh, in fact, I listened to Ellen's podcast earlier that, that you guys had on. I mean, um, there's a lot of things and changes in just doing a simple blood smear or just even looking at CBCs or other things they can tell you a lot about what's going on in the elephant in addition to the qPCR for EEHV. But if you're having an EEHV issue, specifically having a qPCR done on the blood is going to be very helpful to confirm, you know, 
what's probably going on, you're probably going to see other changes going on in the blood. Some may be more subtle than others, but that's the most important thing. De detecting stuff from the trunk is, I, I just don't think it's going to be diagnostic for emerging EEHV um, associated disease. So routine monitoring for viremia is yes. not, is not really possible for trunk wash, correct? Well, you can, you can look for shedding, but there's all kinds of reasons why you might see some virus in the trunk. Like, is right. it- Even if they're not viremic. What's that? Even if yeah. they're not, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. They might shed if they're not viremic. Um, how do you know that they weren't just touching trunks with another elephant and low levels you detect are cross contamination from another elephant that's shedding? There's a lot of things that could go on that, you know, you can't always determine what the exact source of that EHV that you detect in a trunk wash, you know, did it, is it actually coming from that elephant or from another elephant even? You can't always determine that. If there's high levels that you detect, it's most likely coming from that elephant though. And then lastly, trunk wash is important for serology? Uh, no, uh, getting serum is important for serology. That's okay. it. All right. Sorry, so, what, so, so, ju so just for everybody's sort of edification, what is the, the main function? Because we do, I mean, obviously we have Erin right up the hill and we do lots with her and we do surveillance all the time and our elephants are all at this point older and not at risk of being ill, but we want to have a lot of baseline information for when the day comes, we do get younger elephants or breed again or what have you. Um, what is the primary function or the primary value of the trunk wash samples? Is it just for shedding the, the, the presence of shedding virus? Yeah, no, I think um, knowing, doing trunk wash on your herd is very important. So I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, I just think, and again, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a veterinarian, so I don't want to get too far into an area that's not mine, but I, I, I don't think that uh, determine, finding EHV in a trunk is going to be important for deciding what you're going to do in terms of treating or not treating an elephant. You really, want, you really need to get the blood. Um, now, there's very good things you can get from, from looking at trunk washes and detecting virus in trunk washes. Um, genotyping different viruses that might be circulating in the herd. That's very valuable information you can get from your herd. And also, uh, if you've had an instance where an, an elephant um, has potentially had virem uh, uh, viremia or been clinically ill, uh, again, uh, uh, shedding in the trunk wash may be indicative they're shedding a lot of virus, you know, then you know there's going to be potential a lot of spread amongst her herd mates, right? So I think trunk washes are important, but again, you've probably heard on multiple uh, 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 meetings where veterinarians have gotten up and talked. And, you know, I, in terms of diagnostics, I think the blood is, is definitely key. Busy before we, we end this podcast, you know, whoever's our guest, <coughs> an opportunity, if there's any like closing remarks or messages that you would like, you know, to give directly to the people in our audience, you know, with about, um, we've already touched a little bit on what we can do and all that kind of stuff. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you would like to leave kind of in a final messaging? Or ways that we can continue or potentially be of service to the stuff that you're trying to, to figure out and research. Right. 
I mean, so far my, my contacts with elephant keepers and managers and curators and everybody who's working with elephants, I think is doing, you know, the best that they can to provide information and samples from their herds for us to look at, whether it's, um, you know, under circumstances with an elephant that might be uh, incurring, you know, an emerging illness, um, but also just for research purposes as well. And um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, uh, you know, everything that the elephant community has done in terms of trying to help us in any way that they can. I, I have yet to run into a, a situation where, you know, somebody looked like somebody was trying to, to block what we were trying to do or, you know, um, you know, try to uh, prevent us from, from getting something we might need to, to progress with, with the research. So no, I'm, I'm grateful to the elephant community. If you guys have all pulled together, I think really well um, from my perspective. Is that a, is that a, is that a, a, a big letdown? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It'd be more of a letdown if you had a list of a hundred things that we're not doing. Yeah. No, uh, what, what I'm, what I'm actually really grateful for is, uh, that, um, you know, that, uh, you guys, uh, uh, you know, communicate with me and trust me with, uh, what I'm doing and, and, and the things we're trying to do and help facilitate what uh, we're trying to do in terms of now moving forward with the vaccine. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm grateful for that. And I know you guys are all super passionate about your elephants. And so letting me into your world has been uh, a, it's been, it's been really fun. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I hope I'm contributing and, and to a level that's helping you guys out. So there's no question that that's happening, Paul. And I think the big thing for us is that, you know, it's certainly for anybody who's listening right now to this and is hearing you for the first time or um, wants to know what else they can do. Obviously, any any assistance we provide you will hopefully come back to us tenfold. Right. And that's not that's obviously not why we would do it, but it's certainly a motivating factor for us. I just want to make sure that we get the message out um, for people that, you know, obviously we know this is more of a an issue for younger elephants and things like that. But regardless of what other, what, whatever elephants you might be um, taking care of or have at your institution, that, that there's uh, opportunity for them to contribute if they'd like to, and also to make sure that they're aware of the things that you, you know, the potentially the things that you would need from, from us or from an institution that might not be, you know, as plugged in at the moment. So I just want to make sure that that information is out there because even though there's a fair number of elephants in this country, obviously, uh, it is a limited number. And, and, you know, some of these things are some of the things we learn and the things we need to know are situational. They happen when they happen, whether it's sample collection on a death or um, information right. we learn from an illness or things like that. So I just want to make sure it's out there for everybody to understand kind of what they potentially could do for you. We appreciate what you've done for us, but we always want to return the favor. Obviously. No, thanks. And, and I'll just reiterate that and just say anybody who listened to this, who I don't know or haven't talked to, um, feel free to contact me anytime, anywhere about anything to do with EHV. If there's anything I can do to help, um, you know, my contact information is out there. They can get it from you guys. They can Google me, whatever, email me, call me, whatever. Um, yeah, I'm here. 
So uh, when, when can we expect a vaccine? Um, that's a good, no, good question. I, I heard it was by election day. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, I went to the Center for Veterinary Biologics and told them that, um, you know, that all, all the regulations were ever out the door. We're, you know, we're going to get this thing passed. So, uh, no, um, you know, we have some first generation things that we're working on and we hope to talk about this in the coming year or two. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys some more about this, uh, in the, in the next couple of years in terms of how we might, um, you know, move from what we're doing in the lab and in mice to, uh, taking a look at actually looking at elephants. So um, we'll be hearing more about that in the coming months. Paul, thanks again for this. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Right. Thank you. Glad to talk to you guys. Thanks again. Once again, listening to Packy Chat. You know, I say it every time, but, you know, Packy Chat is not about agendas or anything like that. It's just a handful of guys getting together and talking about elephants and our passion for elephants. So we're not trying to push anything on anybody. Uh, we hope that anyone that listens has an open mind. And, you know, if you can take one or two things away from the stuff we talk about, great. Uh, if it spurs on uh, some conversation in the barn or makes you think about things differently or even reassures that what you're doing is right, uh, you know, that's all great. You know, we, I'll say it over and over, we love elephants and we love to talk about them. So that's what this is all about. So thanks so much for listening to us, and thanks as always for supporting us on Facebook or wherever you listen to your podcasts. A couple things. If you have other topics you want to hear us talk about, send us a, a message on Facebook or email us at packychatpodcasts at gmail.com, P-A-C-H-Y-C-H-A-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll answer those emails uh, as soon as we can or give us ideas for future topics. And again, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, we are on Patreon now. Uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, uh, and look up Packy Chat. And all that is is a way to help support us. Uh, you know, I know times are tough for everybody, and we're certainly not looking to make a profit on Packy Chat. But uh, there are some expenses that go along with it. Microphones, uh, software, podcast space, all that thing costs money that we're paying for out of our pocket right now, which we're f happy to do. Uh, but any support, if you like us, like us enough to support us, that's great. You know what? And if now is not the time to provide any uh, financial support, we are so cool with that as well. Just uh, give us a like and share with your friends. That's good enough for us. Uh, as always, thanks so much for listening to us, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.